You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, We are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing Yahweh's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what Yahweh will command concerning you. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to Yahweh. In the second month, on the fourteenth day, at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones, according to all the statute, for the Passover they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people, because he did not bring Yahweh's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, According to the statute of the Passover, and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of Yahweh, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of Yahweh, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of Yahweh and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of Yahweh, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of Yahweh, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or, if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days, or a month, or a longer time, that the cloud continued 
over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of Yahweh, they camped, and at the command of Yahweh, they set out. They kept the charge of Yahweh at the command of Yahweh by Moses. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 625 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 24th, 2023, and that was Numbers chapter 9, talking about the Passover and how this should be a statute, even if you make yourself unclean by touching a dead body, even if you're traveling, you should still keep the Passover. And if you are able to keep it and you don't keep it, well, then what does it mean to be cut off from your people? I think I think what it means to be cut off from your people is to be no longer considered an Israelite. It means that you're no longer part of this nation, this country, this people of God. And we see that crop up as a penalty, as a punishment a number of times in the law so far to this point, reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Now we're in Numbers. We have this book and Deuteronomy. And then we're through the first five books, also known as the Pentateuch. But several times we've seen God say, thou shalt not. And if any man does, or if any woman does, they shall be cut off from their people. It would seem to me as though... That's quite a evocative picture of, on a more individual basis, what Jesus says in the New Testament about if a certain part of your body causes you to sin, remove it and throw it away from you. It would be better for you to continue and persevere without that part of your body than for your whole self to be cast into hell. So you have the idea sometimes taken too literally, like it's that part of your body that is causing you to sin. In church history, the early church father, Origen, for instance, is reputed to have castrated himself so that he would never be tempted to desire a woman or commit sexual sin. And I say, I I think that was not necessary. I think you didn't need to do that. I don't think you literally needed to castrate yourself. But even so, even if literally that's what Jesus was saying is if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes here with regards to a community of believers or followers or the people of God, the people that was no people that he made into a people and blessed and is now shepherding in the wilderness. This people, it would be better for them to have certain individuals removed from their number than for them to be unified (laughs) and all of them lost. But it's interesting to me as well, this last part of the chapter, talking about the cloud covering the tabernacle and how it was almost a red light, green light sort of a thing. If God's presence was on the tabernacle in the form of a cloud, it was not time to go yet. 
it was time to stay. And if the cloud lifted, then, okay, now we break camp and we continue. And God himself will lead us. And if God didn't lead them for days or a month or whatever period of time, then they stayed. And even if it were a short period of time, if God's cloud lifted and it was no longer over the tabernacle, covering the tabernacle, well, even though we haven't been here very long, it's time to go. It's time to move out. And I think to myself here, when it comes to God and his relationship with his people here, that this is discipline. This is training. This is, I don't want to compare it to dog training, but it's something like obedience training as you would with a dog, but maybe actually even better than that. It's like the obedience training that you would instill in a child. And so later in this episode, the very end of this episode, we'll be talking about childhood, as a matter of fact, the disappearance of childhood by Neil Postman. And yet for right now, consider that the people of Israel were also referred to as the children of Israel, which is to say, not that they were all adolescents or they were all youths. There were plenty of adult men and women, grown men and women, elderly, right? They all went through their life cycles as we do. But it is to say God regarded Israel as his possession, his people, and engaged his people like a father would, because God is our father. And that's how Jesus refers to him. And that's how Jesus teaches us to pray, is to pray our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, or your name is holy, set apart, perfect, glorious. Here in Numbers chapter 9, it's interesting to imagine being an Israelite and to be watching the tabernacle to see, is it time to go or can I get comfortable? How long do we have? To see that and to be watching and for everybody to be watching to see when God is going to lead in the coming days or weeks or months. That expectation of God leading might not be so dissimilar to how my children, when they know we're planning to go somewhere, will ask my wife and I, hey, when are we going to go? What time are we going to leave? And my wife and I, We'll sometimes say, well, not until much later. It's going to be a few hours. We're planning on leaving at such and such a time, or we need to leave no later than such and such a time. And we'll tell them in advance. But sometimes what we say is, hey, you need to be ready. You need to get ready now and stay ready and be ready when we say it's time to go. And I think there's a similar kind of mindset for Israel here as they're watching the tabernacle. You wouldn't want to be caught flat-footed when it's time to leave and you weren't paying any attention, you weren't paying attention to those around you who were packing up and moving out when they were paying attention to the tabernacle, you wouldn't want to fail to notice that the tabernacle was being disassembled, moved out. Well, so also, even though this isn't the Old Testament period that we live in now, it's the New Testament period, this is the new covenant, we still should be expectant for God to lead For God to lead his people, his church, we should still be looking to his word and filled with the spirit and obedient. But 
Let's move on. Let's talk briefly in this episode about some current events items and also some interesting philosophical type essays. The first being from the National Review by a certain Andrew T. Walker, published February 26th, 2023. The title is Resist the Post-Liberal Temptation. This article was sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. Thank you, as always, J.P., for giving me really good material to talk through, think through, consider, and bring to the rest of this audience. But I'd like to read for you a selection, a little bit from the beginning of this article and also the conclusion before we move on. Walker writes, pay attention to intellectual debates on, let's broadly call it the right, and you can easily come away with the impression that liberal democracy, the very foundation upon which the American experiment rests, is in intractable decline and inevitable collapse. Because definitions matter, liberal democracy, in its usage here, denotes a regime established to secure and administer a just order by respecting an individual's natural rights through a system of ordered liberty, the rule of law, and constitutional procedure. According to various critiques, liberal democracy has strayed so far from its Judeo-Christian beginnings that its problems are not merely comparable to a head cold that will eventually go away, but to a terminable disease from which death is imminent. We could call this the declensionist critique from the likes of individuals like Stephen Wolf, author of the much-discussed The Case for Christian Nationalism. A similar narrative holds that liberal democracy was flawed from its foundation because it was premised on a false anthropology organized around maximizing liberty instead of protecting religion, family, and social cohesion. We could call this the foundationalist critique, evident in the works of figures like Patrick Deneen in Why Liberalism Failed. Now, let me just pause right here in the reading and say that this setup here is very, very important to me. I don't think that this is just an academic problem. I got a little bit frustrated in talking through some debate back and forth on the Westminster Confession of Faith in our last episode, and my reasons hold true. Again, I apologize if I gave any offense to those who are more academic, but I stand by what I said, that academic debate over commentaries on commentaries on confessions are not going to get us out of the mess that we're in. And therefore, while perhaps entertaining, nevertheless, we have to know that they are of limited value. This question right here of whether liberal democracy is itself inherently flawed, this is not just a dry, dusty academic debate. This really is foundational. And might I just suggest that for the Christian, trying to think rightly about political engagement, whether to engage in politics at all or stay out of it, or how to engage in politics, if we will, do we, on the terms of the left or on the terms of 
the mainstream conservative movement in America, do we blaze a new trail? You know, those debates all are heavily influenced by this question of anthropology. Who are we? Where do we come from? How did we get here? Where are we going? What are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? How do we get to where we're going? And how do we occupy our time? What do we value? What's our vision of the good life, really? Is our vision of the good life one in which individual liberty is subordinated in an extreme way? Is our vision of the good life one in which individual liberty is the highest good and all other human institutions are a means to an end of securing individual liberty? These are very important questions in figuring out whether we are going to engage politically, how, when, and to what ends. Not a dry, dusty question. And actually, this is, I think, in part, my uncomfortability and the uncomfortability that many have with certain aspects of what Stephen Wolf has written in The Case for Christian Nationalism. I am not chiefly interested in either refuting or proving true Stephen Wolf's book. But insofar as I am chiefly concerned with hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, I want to know whether certain kinds of political engagement get in the way and they represent an opportunity cost at best because they're a waste of time, they're fruitless, and whether some forms of engagement are actually damnable and damning in a certain sense and lead others down the wrong path. I want to know that. I also want to know if certain forms of political engagement, certain ends, certain means are not just neutral. They're not just okay. They are imperative once you realize that your responsibility lies there. But all of that really comes back to this question of how the individual relates to the family, the local church, the civil magistrate, ultimately how the individual man and the church and the civil magistrate and, yes, the home relate to God. How should we then live, my friends? This is hugely important and not, not something that you just hold off on thinking about if you don't have some advanced degree from a prestigious university, if you haven't read and studied commentaries on commentaries on old documents. However good they are, there can be a very significant barrier to entry if our discourse is too convoluted, too complex, and in some sense, exclusionary and self-congratulatory. Andrew T. Walker concludes his article with this paragraph, which I will read for you, and you can check out the rest in between what I have already read and what I'm about to read in the description for this podcast episode. I'll put a link. But Walker concludes his article with the following. I'm not writing to defend liberal democracy as the only reasonable output that a conservative or a Christian could come away with from a biblical worldview. Short of the kingdom of God itself, all political regimes are imperfectible. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with the urgency of witnessing to the truth as the occasion presents us. Truth is attractive. If we abandon the responsibility of making arguments in ways that can actually persuade, we do not deserve to be taken seriously. We must make those arguments forthrightly, but also with gentleness and respect as my Christian faith teaches, 1 Peter 3.15. We are driven by truth. 
not crowd-appeasing winsomeness. We must also understand that we have the ability right now to mobilize and persuade. All that's stopping us from moral sanity is mustering the arguments, political strategies, and slow-plotting activity to recapture institutions. But we are distracted from these endeavors by whining, griping, sniping at other conservatives who have not given up on liberal democracy and by writing the umpteenth obituary for liberal democracy on a substack. The fact of the matter is that figures like Ron DeSantis or groups like Alliance Defending Freedom have done more for conservatives and Christians while working within the confines of American constitutionalism than any book on Christian nationalism or professorial diatribe will ever accomplish. And in some sense, I agree with Andrew T. Walker here, actually. And I would also say there are limits, right? And I think he would agree with that, but not necessarily contradicting him. But maybe perhaps just to put it in my own words, I would say I have very real and abiding concerns about calls for winsomeness that can easily turn into compromise to win favor with the world at the expense of faithfulness to God. I'm very concerned about that. I'm also very concerned about a belligerence from some who say, these people are going to hell anyways, and so I'm going to treat them like it. I'm going to treat them like (laughs) a preview of the hell they're going to. And to that, I say, that is not persuasive, and I don't believe that that is faithful either. You know, whether it's honeyed words and flattery, or whether it is dropping the hammer on people left and right, it can look very, very different. But if it's not obedient, it's much the same thing. Now, that said, I would agree with Andrew T. Walker. And yet, I would say, on the one hand, these institutions are imperfectible, and yet we are called to be perfect. And there's a paradox to that. I admit, I feel it too, but we are called to pursue perfection. We're also called to be gracious and patient. And so we're pursuing perfection while also extending grace to one another and also resting on the grace of God, the goodness of God. His grace is sufficient for us, and that's how we sleep at night. That's, <laughs> that's how we don't become nervous wrecks. On the flip side, I disagree. Here's where I disagree with Andrew T. Walker. He says, all that's stopping us from moral sanity is mustering the Arguments, political strategies, and slow-plotting activity to recapture institutions. That's not all that's stopping us, friend. I, that's not all. You know, I understand. Walker here teaches ethics at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's not a dope. Maybe he misspoke. But that's not all that's stopping us from moral sanity. We do wrestle against flesh and blood when we go awry, but... We're reminded that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood ultimately, but we wrestle against powers and principalities. And so there's a spiritual component here, and you might say, well, but that spiritual component is already overcome. We are more than conquerors. And I say, yes, yes, you're right, but we're conquerors to the extent that God fights for us and gives us the victory. And there could be, and I'm not saying I hope this, and I'm not saying I'm telling us to do nothing, but just to temper our investment and our expectations, there's the possibility that the most we accomplish through our efforts, through our investment of time and attention is to be found faithful. 
These could be the trials of Job scaled up for Christians in America who are faithful. And if so, I don't want us to think all that's stopping us is our own lack of effort. We're just not trying hard enough. There could be a variation on the name it and claim it theology, which we should be so wary of. There could be a variation on the prosperity theology that we don't want to embody. Yes, there's a promise of a blessing, but that blessing might just be to have a good conscience, to have a good conscience keeping us company in jail or in a prison or in a concentration camp. That might be what the blessing is in this life. And if that's the good Lord's purpose, to be glorified by getting representation against all threats, against all retaliation, against all the ugliness that the spiritual forces arrayed against us would muster, well then, so be it. Amen. But in other news, I have a much longer article to share with you. Not that I'm going to read this whole thing either, but I will give you the link and you can go read the whole thing or listen to it as I did. I turned on Speechify and let it play for me, to me this morning. The Impossible Bronze Age Mindset. John Errett writes April 15th, 2023 for AmericanReformer.org. Subtitle, Only a Better Story Can Answer the Post-Christian Right. John Errett writes, A specter is haunting American conservatism. The specter of vitalism. The word, like the orientation it describes, is a complex and multivalent. Originally, vitalism was a specific term of art, denoting a philosophical current emerging out of German idealism, one that stressed sheer life in all its glory and chaos as the Ur principle of the human sciences. But while the shadow of that tradition still lingers, its expression is different today. The new vitalism mostly exists as an online right-wing movement, one that rejects the premises of liberalism, leftism, and religious conservatism alike. Culture critic Tara Isabel Burton has called it atavism, a project of reversion to a primordial way of being. Others describe it as the dissident right, but vitalism, for all the word's historical baggage, seems most apt. In place of Ronald Reagan's famous three-legged stool, free market economics, military interventionism, and religious conservatism, the new vitalists would burn the place down altogether and host a festival around the pyre. This new vitalism is in short a profoundly deconstructive project, but not a nihilistic one, at least not in the exhausted and apathetic sense that adjective connotes. Rather, it is a call for the deepest possible return of all, a breaking of the fetters of secular liberalism and Judaism and Christianity alike, a recovery of a more elemental way of being in the world. The nostalgia of neo-vitalism is for humanity's most ancient days, for blood and war and shamans and the fierce exaltation of the kill. In what follows... And as I say, this is a long piece by John Errett. He talks about the flirting with going back to pre-Christian days, the glory days as some see them, of the ancient Greeks and Romans. And while that might be of interest to the classicists, 
who are not particularly religious, John Errett is right to point out, we can't do it. We can't do it, and if we did, it would be evil. It would be wrong. As Tom Holland, author of the great book Dominion, arguably the best history of Western civilization I have ever read, go check it out. Check out my review of it as well if you aren't quite sure, if you're not quite sold just yet. As Tom Holland makes very clear, it wasn't just the Greeks and the Romans who gave us Western civilization. You could not have Western civilization without the Jews and without Christianity. We would not have Western civilization if not for Christians putting these things together, making them work, stabilizing them with compassion and grace and a genuine love for God and a genuine love for one another. And even, even yes, for those who were persecuting them, who hated them. Even, yes, for those who wouldn't understand and didn't understand. So I'll recommend this article to you by John Errett. He's an attorney and writer in Washington, D.C. He lives there with his wife and son. You can check out the full article from him. It's fairly lengthy, but I'll leave you with a few of his closing thoughts from the last section of this piece. He says, Friedrich Schleiermacher is mostly known today for his existential experiential interpretation of Christian faith in terms of absolute dependence, but he was also a hermeneuticist before the field properly existed, arguing for a view of interpretation that was essentially reconstructive. Quote, since we have no direct knowledge of what was in the author's mind, we must try to become aware of many things of which he himself may have been unconscious, end quote. For Schleiermacher, the thought worlds of the past can be reconstituted anew, recreating long-gone contexts of meaning. And Bronze Age mindset is an invitation into Schleiermacher's paradigm, an invitation to trust that over against the tides of time, the ancient fire of pure being can be relit if one only knows the way. For some, that is an appealing invitation. Amidst the pathos of late modernity, it may even be a seductive one, but it is an impossible one, as Gadamer knew. Quote, reconstructing the original circumstances like all restoration is a futile undertaking. In view of the historicity of our being, what is reconstructed, a life brought back from the long past, is not the original. That which is carried forward, whether from the Bronze Age or any other time, quote, acquires only a derivative cultural existence, end quote. It can only be grasped across the mediation of time. A great shadow falls over the new vitalism in which the twin notions of guilt and mortality coincide, these biblical truths that have been passed down through the Jewish and Christian tradition that first rendered the ancient thought worlds questionable, tart and bellow, if they show nothing else, drive home that truth with penetrating force. The vitalists may rage, but they cannot escape the snare. After the interruption of the cross of Jesus Christ, there can no longer be a Bronze Age mindset, not anymore. End quote. And this is great stuff. This is very well written. This is very well said. This is uh, perhaps you could say 
a different way of saying the same thing that Tom Holland says at length and very well, also in his own way in Dominion. For those who want to romanticize the Bronze Age, who want to romanticize the Golden Age of the Greeks or Imperial Rome at its height, do what Tom Holland did. Go back and actually read these histories to the present. And you will find that they could not sustain it. The Romans Romans and the Greeks could not sustain what it is that they themselves built. It took the grace of God manifesting itself through Christians and the church. Not either or, which also goes back into our discussion of this last article. Is it the individual or is it the group that matters? Are we trying to protect religion or the rights of the individual? And I say, yes. Remember what James says, James, half-brother of Jesus in the New Testament? He says that religion that God the Father finds pure and acceptable as this to visit orphans and widows in their need. And what is that except to say God cares deeply about your religious life. He also cares deeply about those who are being downtrodden just because somebody or lots of somebodies find them to be easy targets. God cares about all of the above, not either or. And when it seems as though there's a conflict, maybe that's because our view of individuality and our view of the community or the family or the church or civil society is out of calibration. In fact, I'm quite sure that that's what it is. In other news, Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee has posted as of yesterday, Hunter College professor holds machete to a reporter's neck after going postal on pro-life students. I'm going to play for you Cut one from the professor confronting these pro-life students with Students for Life. And I warn you in advance, there is language. So just to be clear, if you have young ears present, you might cover their ears. But nevertheless, here is cut one of the radical professor Shalene Rodriguez, cursing at pro-life students. Take a listen. You're not educating shit. This is fucking propaganda. What are you going to do, like anti-trans next? Is that what you're going to do next? I mean, no, we're we're talking about abortion. This is bullshit. This is violent. You're triggering my students. I'm sorry about that. No, you're not. Because you can't even have a fucking baby. So you don't even know what that is. You don't even know what this is. Get this shit the fuck out of here, bro. Fuck this shit. Okay, so we'll stop right there before I play the next clip for you. Let's just think about what it is that she is saying for a moment. She's saying that this pro-life, anti-abortion display table is triggering her students. So she takes ownership over these being her students. And when she says that they are being triggered by this table and by these materials and by these students for life even being present, she's really acting on behalf of, at least this is the claim, 
the feelings of students who don't like that these pro-life students are present. Now, let me ask you a very simple question that could help you to reframe these kinds of situations. Because this gal, by the way, she's not the only one like this out there. You might not encounter her specifically, but it's still relevant because your kids, if your kids are in the public schools or if your kids are in a public college or if you or your loved ones are in any kind of a public space these days, you probably will encounter somebody who thinks like this, who acts like this, who reasons like this, who emotes like this. But just think with me for a moment about how little regard this professor has for the Students for Life students and their feelings. Have you ever noticed how it's never conservatives who are allowed to be triggered? It's only leftists. It's only those who the left has been able to play worm tongue with and ingratiate themselves with. It's only those who are under the kind of hypnosis that the left puts people under with corporate media, with social media, with academia. Who can be triggered? So what we have is we have students for life being cursed at and having their materials violently disrupted on the table. So this professor is angry. Her students are upset. She's upset because her professor role is supposedly to protect the students' feelings who are going to be upset about these things. But her professor role, it doesn't require her to be considerate of the students who are pro-life and their feelings, apparently. Interesting. Interesting that. So she cares about the feelings of her students who would object to this, but she doesn't care about the feelings of the pro-life students. Interesting how that works. Also, too, what is she a professor of? She's a professor of emotions, apparently. She professes her feelings. She professes her contempt for these students. Just because she's an older woman, just because she has this title, that doesn't mean that she has greater wisdom or knowledge. Certainly, it doesn't mean that she has more virtue. And for exhibit A, if the clip that I just played for you was not sufficient, I'll play for you cut two. Here is the same professor as she threatens a New York Post reporter. Here it is, cut two. Take a listen. Get the away from my door. Get the away from my door. Let's, let's get out of here. You can't do that. Okay, what you can't see, if you're only listening to the audio, is you can't see this professor holding a machete to the throat of this New York Post reporter, according to Charlie Kirk's tweet. That's who it is that she is threatening with a machete. So the tweet from Charlie Kirk was, she should be fired immediately. Here's a quick update for you on this story. She has been fired reportedly and all for the better. She should not be 
teaching anybody when this is her attitude towards those who are pro-life or towards those who would do some investigative reporting on how she interacted with pro-life students. This is not okay. This is unacceptable, and it needs to be clear that it's unacceptable. And we shouldn't tolerate young adults or children being taught by somebody who is this disrespectful, this rude, this amoral at best, but really immoral, more to the point. Moving on, as we build up to The Disappearance of Childhood by Neil Postman and a review of that book. Let's talk about John McCormick's May 19th piece in the National Review. The Kermit Gosnell of Colorado, Colorado being where I and my family reside, this is close to home for me, closer to home for me than it is for people who are listening internationally or even nationally in many cases. But the subtitle question here is chilling and nauseating. And I don't mean that as a knock on John McCormick. I mean that on a very primal level with regards to the evil being described in this piece. The question is, how is stabbing a 30-week-old baby in the heart with a poison-filled syringe before birth morally different from snipping a 30-week-old baby's neck moments before birth? That's the question. The article written by John McCormick begins, and I quote, Ten years ago this month, Philadelphia abortionist Dr. Kermit Gosnell was convicted on three counts of murder for killing infants with a pair of scissors moments after they had been born. In addition to the murder convictions for what Gosnell described as snippings and his assistant more accurately called beheadings, Gosnell was also convicted on 21 counts of killing babies in utero later than 24 weeks of pregnancy. The legal abortion limit established under Pennsylvania's 1982 Abortion Control Act. Now, let me just stop right there. Abortion Control Act. Abortion Control Act. The state, the government, the governing authority, the civil magistrate has a responsibility to act with regards to abortion and to abolish it. Not to regulate it, not to control it, not to dictate exactly how many weeks a baby has to be before it's not okay to murder it him, her, he or she is a human life made in God's image. And if you don't believe that with regards to a child in his or her mother's womb, 
then tell me truly, what is the difference? How is stabbing a 30-week old baby in the heart morally different from snipping a 30-week old baby's neck moments before birth? How is that morally different? And whatever your answer is, if you answer anything other than it isn't different, the moral claim you have just made is that you are the arbiter of right and wrong. You are the judge. You are the nearest thing, the nearest being, the nearest entity to God himself. At least in your own mind. The follow-on question should be, how is stabbing a 30-month-old baby in the heart? How is stabbing a 30-year-old man or woman in the heart with a poison-filled syringe morally different from snipping the same's neck outside of the womb? And whatever tortured argument somebody will make, some ethicist who is godless, whatever tortured argument they will make, the common theme is, if they say that it's morally different, just because the state has legalized the one and declared illegal the other, then you are saying that the government is God. If you say that one is morally superior and the other is morally inferior, one is permissible and the other is impermissible, one is good, one is evil, one is okay or tolerable and the other absolutely not, based on your own judgment, your own reason, then you have just elevated your own judgment, your own reason to the position of God in your own universe. And here's where I would say, if God has not given you these distinctions and he hasn't said there is a difference, there's a meaningful difference, and if this child of any age has done nothing to deserve this, they're guilty of no crime, their mother just doesn't want to raise them, woe to you. As we scroll down through McCormick's piece here, he quotes Elaine Godfrey reporting for The Atlantic. I prodded for cracks in Hearn's certainty. At one point, I thought I'd found one. Hearn had told me about a woman who'd sought an abortion because she didn't want to have a baby girl. I thought he had refused, but then I followed up to ask him why. I learned that I misunderstood. Hearn said he had done abortions for sex selection twice, once for this woman and once for someone who had desperately wanted a girl. It was their choice to make, he explained. Quote, so if a pregnant woman with no health issues comes to the clinic, say, at 30 weeks, what would you do, end quote? I asked Hearn once. The question irked him. Quote, every pregnancy is a health issue, end quote. 
Quote, there's a certifiable risk of death from being pregnant, period, end quote. Now, here's the twisted, demonic rationale. Just because you're at risk, there's some risk of harm to you as a pregnant woman. Therefore, anything you want to do to this child will now be justified in this supposed healthcare professional's mind. Now, let me ask you this. Let me just ask a, a quick qualifying question. Does somebody going to medical school mean that they are therefore incapable of doing anything wrong? Does it thereby mean that they're not capable of, let's say, for instance, murder? Does it mean that they're not capable of doing things just because they stand to make money from doing those things? Does somebody going to medical school mean that they are in a different category just on that fact alone to where you can't criticize them, you can't disagree with them? Does them supposedly being a man or woman of science mean that you can't question them, you can't challenge them, you can't disagree with them because they are closer to science than you are? Is that how it works? Because this guy, Hearn, Dr. Warren Hearn of Boulder, Colorado, Hearn is acting and speaking clearly from the presumption that that's the case. If we would stop the kinds of things that happened at the command of a Nazi administration in Germany in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, if we would stop those things from happening here in the United States, and they have been happening, by the way, but if we would stop them from happening anymore, we must think rightly about what it means and what it doesn't mean for somebody to have an advanced degree or a medical degree or a license to practice medicine, or for that matter, a license to declare what is public health policy. We have to understand what these things mean and what they don't mean, or else we can't protect innocent children from villains. Somebody putting on a white lab coat does not mean that you should therefore turn off your brain and just trust that whatever they're going to do, whatever they're going to say, that is true. That is how you know something is true because somebody in a white lab coat told you, somebody with an advanced degree told you, you know that it's true because they told you. In that case, then you've just said that that person is the closest thing to God in your universe. If they can just unilaterally declare the difference between good and evil and you just take their word for it without question, particularly if you know what God's word says. To the contrary, might I suggest a radical, radical idea? Might I suggest that only God gets to set the terms for when it is morally permissible, defensible, and even necessary to take life? And that if God has not said it is permissible for you to take somebody's life because they're young or because they're old or because they're mentally ill or because they're physically ill or because you just don't like them, it's murder. If God has not said that it's morally permissible, then it's murder. And just because somebody has a license, that doesn't mean that it's not murder. 
And just because somebody is legally permitted to do it, that doesn't mean that it's not murder according to God. God sets the moral law, and he does not change. He has not changed. The moral law has not changed. Our understanding of the moral law might advance by God's grace as we study his word, as we're sensitive to the spirit. But let's move on and let's consider the other end of the life cycle of a human being in this reporting by Hank Berrien over at the Daily Wire. Victoria's secret plus-size model slammed for TikTok videos discussing euthanasia with her grandmother. A social media influencer who was the first plus-sized model for Victoria's Secret was slammed after posting TikTok videos of her talking with her dying grandmother about the grandmother's planned euthanasia. In 2019, Allie Tate Cutler appeared in a photo shoot for Victoria's Secret collaboration with Bluebella. Quote, we are thrilled to be working with Allie on the VS plus Bluebella campaign or VSX Bluebella. I don't know what that means. VS times Bluebella? Why is it X? Anyway, quote, my grandmother has chosen euthanasia for her terminal diagnosis, so this is the last time I can take her out for dinner, end quote. Cutler posted in a TikTok video as she cavorted with her grandmother. And you can check this out for yourself. You can read through, you can follow the links, you can go and find the video. I'm not going to play it for you. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I bring it up as a word of caution because as you judge, so shall you be judged. Don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Don't judge. Don't don't judge based on whether somebody looks like they would be able to protect themselves from you. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In due time, the normalizing of disposing of human life in the womb will logically progress to disposing of life outside the womb. To where we say, if somebody meets all the criteria except for one, by which we decided to terminate the life of the unborn, we will terminate their life as well. And if it's an elderly person who just says, oh, I don't feel like living anymore. And if, as has been reported widely in countries that have legalized euthanasia, if, as it's been reported widely, those countries where healthcare generally has been taken over as a sector of the economy and of public life. It has been taken over by the government. They pay the bills, and so they make the decisions ultimately as to what procedures are approved or not approved. In those countries, you have bureaucrats putting side by side with a decline statement. We decline to give you access to this procedure or to pay for this procedure. You want to have done to save your life. You should consider euthanasia. That is cropping up increasingly. And it's being promoted that families should encourage their loved ones to be euthanized. And this takes on a number of very perverse forms when you have parents talking their children into assisted suicide, medically assisted suicide. You have adults talking their husbands or their wives or their siblings into assisted suicide because essentially the claim is your life is not worth living. You are suffering, and therefore your life has no purpose. And then you come to the elderly, and you say, well, you're suffering, and you don't feel like suffering anymore, and you have decided you wanted to die, and so we're going to celebrate that. And how easy is it for somebody to just unburden themselves? If the predicate is the individual liberty is penultimate, 
That is the highest good. That is our vision of the good life is that nothing gets between you and just doing whatever you want to do all day, every day. When family needs to depend on you, if you encourage them to just off themselves with the help of medical professionals, I say we are seeing the culmination of pro-abortion policy, talking points, academic yammering over the last several decades. And this is also a symptom of people trying to go back in time to pre-Christian thinking, and they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have the advances that were made possible by Christians doing science, Christians forming governments, Christians thinking through the ramifications of how do we build these institutions out to promote human flourishing and justice and mercy and compassion. And let's just never mind about the glory and goodness of God being made manifest and put on display. Never mind that. We want to have all of the benefits without any of the cost. We want to have all of the enjoyment without any of the responsibility. This is a very dangerous place to be. But let's move on. This girl had no idea she was pregnant because she lost 30 pounds, was the flattest I've ever been, that's a quote, and had her period every month before baby came. Not to be staff reports just yesterday about a gal named Kayla. She was 20 when she became a mom in 2021. Here's what the Evie magazine write-up about her has to say with regards to cryptic pregnancies, as they're called. Quote, there exists a rare phenomenon known as a cryptic or stealth pregnancy. This condition occurs when a woman is unaware of her pregnancy until the last few weeks or even until she's in labor. While this may seem implausible, cryptic pregnancies are not as uncommon as you might assume. While precise figures are hard to establish due to the rarity and difficulty in reporting such cases, some studies estimate that cryptic pregnancies occur in about one in 475 pregnancies late into the second trimester. Some even suggest that one in 2,500 women may not realize they're pregnant until they go into labor. That is wild. I'll play the clip for you. If you take a listen, here's cut three. And see what you think. This is the story on how I became a mom within 15 minutes. If you already follow me, then you probably know my story. I experienced what is called a cryptic pregnancy. That is where you don't have any signs or symptoms of said pregnancy. In November 2021, I went to the emergency room with abdominal pain, thinking I had appendicitis. It started in my room where I was curled up in a ball and couldn't get off the toilet. I was having major bleeding and didn't know what to do. Once I called my mom upstairs, she told me that maybe it was just period cramps, but I thought that couldn't be possible because I had just ended my period two days before. At first, we were just going to brush it off, take an Advil, and put a heating pad on but we knew it was serious when I couldn't walk down the stairs. So then my mom rushed me to the ER. I was in so much pain, I couldn't even walk straight up. I was bent over and in so much pain. The doctors then wanted to rule out hernia, ovarian cysts, and appendicitis. So I was taken for an ultrasound. 
again, I am currently in so much pain at this point where I really don't know what was going on. I'm kind of delusional. During the ultrasound, my mom then saw something familiar, which seems to be little feet. I then let out a loud scream. It's obvious I'm in so much pain. So the doctor came in, looked, and I am crowning. I was then rushed upstairs to labor and delivery, where 15 minutes I had my beautiful little daughter. She weighed 6.9 ounces and was 19 inches long. Throughout my so-called pregnancy, I had lost 30 pounds, was the flattest I have ever been, and had my period every month. Maddie was a completely healthy baby and had no medical problems whatsoever. Within those 15 minutes, my life changed forever. And now I can say for the better. People always ask how I was prepared for a baby, material-wise. The answer is I was not at all. I am so grateful to have supportive parents. They ran up the bill at Bye Bye Baby and Macy's. I came home to a fully prepped house. They even turned our extra room into Maddie's very own bedroom. My friends and family also helped by dropping off diapers and any other supplies I would need. I also had a baby shower, but honestly, I didn't even know what to put on the registry because I didn't know what a baby needed, but I also already had everything, which I am so grateful. Another question people always ask me is how I'm doing mentally. I am so grateful that I did not suffer postpartum depression. To keep the answer simple, I was honestly fine. Obviously, I was in shock, but I do think things happen for a reason. I am now the happiest I've ever been and know that I was meant to be a mom. I will do anything and everything for her to have the best life she possibly could have. No one will understand the emotions I went through in that hospital room. But now I can confidently say I am truly blessed to have her in my life. She also pulled the biggest prank she ever will. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Uh. Wow. So a couple things. Uh, there's not a lot of focus close up on the mama, the young mother in this video. Uh, I do find it amusing that <laughs> uh, there's a comparison made to the movie, what to expect when you're expecting Dennis Quaid's wife who is played by uh, this, you know, blonde supermodel gal who, you know, they make a big joke out of having such an easy delivery. Like she says in the movie, okay, hang on, I have to sneeze. And she sneezes and then the baby's just born and it's the easiest delivery ever, right? They, they, they make it ridiculous in contrast to what the experience is of other women, right? Because every pregnancy is different. Every delivery is different. Every story for a birth and delivery and for a child coming into the world, a person, a human being coming into the world is different. They make a bit of a joke out of it and take it to extremes. And yet how wild is this? And can I just speculate just Briefly, and I, I'm not going to go way out on a limb on this, but can I just draw your attention back to Genesis? When God gives the curse, he pronounces the curse. Here's, here's the setup. God says, after each day of creation, he looked at everything that he had made, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. 
and that it was, behold, very good when he made man, male and female, he made mankind, humanity, male and female, in his own image, to be image bearers, and placed them in the garden. He said it was very good. When he gave them one command, to not eat the fruit of a certain tree, the serpent came along, tempted Eve, she ate the fruit, she gave some to her husband who was right there, he ate also, next thing you know, the eyes of the both of them were opened, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed, they had been naked already, they weren't ashamed until all of a sudden they were sinners, they had violated God's law. They had disobeyed God. They'd sinned against the one law which God, who had made them and who had blessed them in every way possible, had given them. They were ashamed. They tried to cover themselves in fig leaves. They hid when God came to see them, as was his routine, to walk with them in the cool of the mist. When God pronounces the curse on the serpent and the woman and the man, he says to the woman that the curse on her will be that she will have pain in childbirth, which begs the question, one of those fun brain teaser questions, and there are many of them in Genesis, and that's not proof that it's nonsense, silly, ridiculousness. It's just... (laughs) It's just a mystery. We don't know. But what if Adam and Eve had not fallen? Would Eve have given birth without pain? Would she have had easy pregnancies followed by easy deliveries where she just realizes one day, oh, hang on, I have to sneeze. And here comes the baby. Would it have been a totally painless thing. Well, it would seem so, based on my reading, anyways, of the curse that God pronounces on the woman. So this woman, she's pregnant for all these months. And by the way, she said ounces, you know, six pounds, 19 ounces is actually, I think, what she meant, or 6.19 pounds. She said 6.19 ounces or something like that. That, that, she put a, a little note in the video correcting herself, but the point being, she gave birth to a normal, healthy baby girl. And if you watch the full video, which I highly recommend, it's a beautiful little video. Here's this baby girl growing, happy, healthy, normal. Mama had no idea that she was pregnant until. The baby was crowning, which is to say the baby is coming, like get upstairs right now, which, you know, it's kind of funny to me because we have had half of our children born at home, most of those all but one unassisted. You didn't need to go upstairs to the delivery room. You don't need a special room for delivery. You can have a baby anywhere, really, truly. I mean... Some places are better and more convenient than others, admittedly. But nevertheless, is this perhaps something of a sneak peek into what it could have been, if not for the fall? 
Just a thought. Just a thought. But also, too, can we just consider this baby was growing in the mother's womb before the mama knew, without her having known, this baby was a baby. If this woman would have, let's just say, hypothetically, given birth in her sleep, would this baby have been either a real human being or not a real human being, dependent on whether the mother even knew that the baby existed or wanted this child? Would this baby have been a real human being, a human life, as valuable as yours or mine, but certainly more innocent than yours or mine? If you're hearing these words right now and you speak English, I guarantee you we are not as innocent as this baby was when this baby was born, this baby girl. Was this baby being a real human being contingent on whether the mother wanted the baby. The mother didn't even know she was pregnant. You could say, well, the baby's life doesn't matter, doesn't mean anything, and God knows better. It's God who knits this life together in the womb. God knows. There's a lot of food for thought here. There's a lot of food for thought. In a more tragic circumstance, imagine if a woman was pregnant and didn't even know that she was pregnant, and then she got in a horrible accident, and then it only is found out that she was pregnant when she's in a coma and she never wakes up from that coma, but this baby is delivered that she's pregnant with. The mom has no idea whether she wants this child or doesn't want this child. Is that a human life as valuable as the human life when the mom knows she's pregnant, wants the child, is ready for the child? This mom, she wasn't ready to have a child. What if, God forbid, she had said, I'm pregnant? No, I need an abortion right now. Well, the baby's crowning. The psychopath in Boulder, Colorado, would say, well, whatever the mom wants, as long as the check clears, God have mercy on our souls. I think he's too far gone. I think there's no hope for him. But God have mercy on our souls if... We rationalize just taking his word for it. He takes the mom's word for it, whatever she wants, whatever she says. If she says this is a viable life, then it's a viable life. If she says she doesn't want this baby just because it's a girl or because it's not a girl, well, then that's all there is to it. It's not a viable life. God have mercy on our souls if we keep up this illusion that that's the test. What if you have some psychopathic parent who allows the child to be born, raises that child to the age of 5, 10, 15 years old, and then decides, I'm tired of taking care of you. I'm tired of raising you. I'm tired of feeding you. I'm tired of clothing, housing you, raising you, 
I'm tired of you talking back, getting into stuff, or making me feel bad. How do our laws work? Do they work to say that child or that teenager's life only matters if the mother and father agree that the child's life matters? No, of course not. But ironically, the same leftists who want to insist on abortion being legal right up to and even after the moment of birth, those same leftists want to take away your rights and my rights as parents to say, no, I don't want my kids being exposed to that in the schools. No, I don't want my kids being taught that. No, I don't want my kids being required to read that. No, I don't want my kids being mocked for their Christian faith. No, I don't want my kids being punished for using the correct pronouns to describe somebody in the public schools. Moving on. U.S. Surgeon General issues advisory about kids' use of social media. Ben Zeisloft reports for thedailywire.com, May 23rd, which was yesterday. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued an advisory on Tuesday warning that social media use among minors can severely damage mental health. The advisory, which noted that social media use is, quote, nearly universal, end quote, for young people noted that there has never been a robust safety analysis for the technology among minors, a reality which comes as mental health declines considerably among the demographic. Murphy, I'm sorry, I said it right the first time, Murthy, it's weird, M-U-R-T-H-Y, Murthy, you would think Murphy, and I keep wanting to say Murphy, but it's Murthy, M-U-R-T-H-Y. <clears throat> Murthy prompted lawmakers, technology companies, and families to take action. Quote, the most common question parents ask me is, is social media safe for my kids? The answer is that we don't have enough evidence to say it's safe. And in fact, there's growing evidence that social media use is associated with harm to young people's mental health, end quote. Murthy said in a statement, quote, children are exposed to harmful content on social media, ranging from violent and sexual content to bullying and harassment. And for too many children, social media use is compromising their sleep and valuable in-person time with family and friends, end quote. Some 95% of minors between 13 and 17 report using social media, while 40% of children between 8 and 12 said the same despite the minimum age requirements for the platforms. The advisory added that frequent use of the technology is associated with changes in the development of the amygdala, the region of the brain responsible for emotional learning and behavior, as well as the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for impulse control and the moderation of social behavior. Now, let me just stop right there and let me point out that I have been talking on this podcast for some time, for months, if not a few years, about the very real concerns that we should have with regards to big tech and social media. I am not a Luddite. I do not live in constant fear of technology. I am very disturbed by the political agenda of the left in big tech in Silicon Valley. I am very disturbed by the censorship of conservatives on the biggest big tech platforms in the world, Facebook, Twitter, Google. For instance, you might also know them by Meta, Alphabet. A lot of these companies, as I've explained before, derive their persuasiveness from a 
lab in Palo Alto, California, which is literally called the Persuasive Technologies Lab, which is to say that the history of this lab, very briefly, and you can go back and find the episode that I talked more specifically about this for more on what I've already said, go to the GarrettAshleyMulletShow.com and do a search for persuasive technology. You'll find it. Or search Palo Alto and you'll find it. But what we have here is the teaming up of psychologists and computer scientists to come up with ever more addictive hardware and software to alter your behavior. And when it's given to children and those children then become addicted and then it works in a radical way and in sometimes unforeseen ways, the result can be very, very disturbing. Something of the tell here is do big tech executives let their own children have profiles on these platforms? Do these big tech giants allow their own children to use these technologies? If not, I would say it's not so dissimilar from when a drug cartel boss keeps their own children from taking the drugs, which they're getting so fantastically wealthy selling to other people. And I'm not saying that these technologies shouldn't be used or that we should totally swear them off. But what I am saying is we need Jesus desperately to deliver us from the addictive and highly manipulative and, yes, even enslaving attributes of these technologies. We need to have a capacity for self-control and to know in which directions we could control ourselves and should control ourselves. We need to know how to control ourselves. We need to have the capacity to control ourselves. We need to insist on raising our children in a way in which they will be able to control themselves to the end of loving God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving their neighbor as themselves. And if these technologies are feeding the opposite impulse to have no fear of God before their eyes and to love only themselves and to only surround themselves with people who will similarly affirm them in loving themselves, then I say these technologies need overhauled. The people who have been engineering these technologies need to be called to account. The companies that have been profiting off of the deployment of these technologies so as to give incredible wealth and power and influence to corporations and political parties, those corporations should be held accountable. I absolutely believe that. I am not a libertarian. I have a lot of libertarian sympathies. I do believe we should have a much, much smaller government, but I am not opposed to going after big tech. If big tech is preying on men, women, and children and defrauding them, stealing their information and setting up others to take them captive and to disenfranchise them. I say absolutely go after those big tech corporations. Heyman, for instance, let's just think about this for a moment. Heyman was coming up with this very elaborate scheme by which he was going to destroy the Jews in Persia and take their wealth for himself, and of course, for others as well, divide the spoils, those who would support him in this bid. He was scheming in this direction, and it took a beautiful woman, 
Hadassah was her Hebrew name. Esther is the name of the book of the Old Testament. Read it for yourself. It's a great, great story. Esther, it is said, had lost both of her parents and had been taken in by her cousin Mordecai. Esther, it says in chapter 2 of the Old Testament book, which bears her name, Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. God used Esther to save the Jews from being rounded up and slaughtered in Persia. And what happened to Haman? Haman had set up these gallows to hang the Jews from because the goal on the other side was to take the property from these Jews. Haman ended up hanging from his own gallows. He ended up being sport for the very crows, which he was hoping would feast on the Jews as he enjoyed their wealth, their possessions, their property. A radical libertarian whose highest principle is libertarian freedom from mandates or prohibitions of any form, of any kind, a radical libertarian is going to say, well, that's not right. Perhaps, possibly, maybe, if we transpose the story of Esther into our current context and start applying these categories to people who are in the mix and arrayed against conservatives in America. And I will say, if they ended up being sport for their own crows, to borrow a Lord of the Rings reference, it would not cause me to lose any sleep. I wouldn't celebrate it. We're warned against that. I'm not cheering on that possibility. I should much rather there be a change of heart. But it wouldn't cause me to lose any sleep at all because I would say these men and women have brought this on themselves. They're animus against conservatives and against those who would say this is the way walkie in it. Their animus, their hatred, their malice, their cruelty, their censorship, their fraud at a certain point will catch up with them. It's just a question of when. Let's do remember that before Elon Musk purchased Twitter, it was reported that content normalizing pedophilia and the trafficking of children for sexual exploitation was given something approaching, reportedly, free reign on the platform. After Elon Musk took over, he put a stop to that and started permabanning accounts that were associated with child pornography. And I say, that's excellent. That is exactly as it should have been all along. If that is even just in the mix with what they are permitting and what they are tolerant of and what they are willing to accept even as the same folks, the same moderators and third-party supposedly independent fact-checkers are willing to go after your content and my content when we're just trying to share a news article and talk about it in an election year or when current events are important to us and we think, right? We were told on the front end when we signed up for these things that this was the public square. This is how you participate, but you're only allowed, you find out, 
indirectly, by accident. You're only allowed to participate in the civil discourse, in the public discourse, in the marketplace of ideas. You're only allowed to participate if you are advancing the progressive agenda. I say if that is the kind of fraud they're willing to perpetrate and sell our private information to the highest bidder, so long as the highest bidder will advance a globalist agenda, a leftist agenda, I say absolutely we should hold them accountable. And every cent of ill-gotten gain should be retrieved and redistributed to those who were defrauded. I'm going to play one more clip for you for this episode. One more, just one more, and then we will get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. I'm going to play a bit of audio for you of an interview which involved, included, was hosted by, in part, Pierce Morgan, Good Morning Britain, in which a related bit of speech and narrative and theory and claim, grievance, complaint, was leveled very closely related to what we'll be talking about in the disappearance of childhood review and what we've been talking about the rest of this episode. Here it is, without further ado, cut four, take a listen. I feel that what you're expressing is a a bit of childism, which is assuming that someone has to be a legal adult to have the capacity to know themselves. Childism is a new one. And I think a child can explore identity. All right, right, I've heard just about every ism imaginable. I've never heard, I've been accused of every ism, and I'm struggling with this new world of isms, right? Uh, What is childism? You're against children. Making their own decisions. Uh, I believe that, well, childism is uh, the normalization of the mistreatment of children just because they're young. You know, like uh, assuming that they can't uh, have opinions or ideas, you know, that they can't, you know, obviously they do need guidance and structure, but mistreating them or treating them like property or denying their identity and autonomy. So giving a child a gender because of its anatomy, assuming that they're boy or girl, or giving them a name, all that would be childism from your point of view. Potentially, yes. Okay, so cut, 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 cut. The creep up on stripping parents of rights over their children comes like this. Potentially, yeah, maybe kind of sort of, let's do isms and esks and kind of sort of's And let's insinuate certain things that we can't directly claim. And let's work off of impressions. Let's build off of feelings and sentiments. And let's call for people to be empathetic towards children. And let's create a whole new class of people in society who are oppressed. Who, if you actually care about those people, you have to speak up on behalf of. If you actually care about those people, you have to prove it. You have to prove that you're an ally to those people. Does this sound familiar? It sounds an awful lot like what has happened before our very eyes over the last 10, 15, 20 years, at least, with regards to homosexuality, with regards to transgenderism. This is the normalization of pedophilia in its line of attack, not just in Britain, This show is a British show. Pierce Morgan is a Brit. 
but not just in the English-speaking world here in America included, since we are, I trust most of us, Americans, if the Spotify (laughs) analytic stats are not misleading me. Not just in the English-speaking world, in the majority of the world where the United Nations holds sway, where the WEF has anything to say about it, in the majority of the world, this will be the line of attack. This will be the approach. Like a predator stalking its prey quietly, very slowly, very patiently, downwind or crosswind from an unsuspecting victim. Let's insinuate that parents are actually oppressing their children by telling their children no, by telling their children, you're not a boy trapped in a girl's body. You're not a girl trapped in a boy's body. You are a boy. You were born a boy. You're still a boy. We gave you a boy's name. You are a boy. We gave you a girl's name. You are a girl. We've dressed you up like a boy for all these years. You are a boy. You've been dressed up like a girl all these years. You are a girl. Let's insinuate that all of that was inherently oppressive and tyrannical, and parents are, if they are not progressives, if they are not leftists, if they are not for the radical redistribution of wealth and power, parents are the primary threat to the liberation of their children. That's how it will be packaged. That's how it's being packaged. That's how it's being promoted. That's the line of attack. Understand that. Know that. Recognize that. Search the related conversations you have observed or you've been a part of for whether that has borne out. In your own experience, in your own hearing, in your own seeing, search whether that doesn't reflect the trouble that American parents have when they complain to school boards, for instance, about sexually explicit materials that are promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism for children of all ages in the public schools, in public libraries. Search whether that doesn't accurately convey the paradigm of Walt Disney Company as it promotes videos and sound clips and press releases complaining about Republicans in the state of Florida, for instance. Ron DeSantis especially for banning gender-affirming care or gender theory being taught in the public schools or critical race theory being taught in the public schools. Check whether that doesn't fit the pattern. On the one hand, whether you have sympathies for this or you don't, on the one hand, I don't think it can be denied that you have people who are saying children and all categories of people who are perceived to not have an equal amount of authority, wealth, power, representation are oppressed. And those who do have more of those things are the oppressors by default, especially if they leverage all of these same, all all of the above to reinforce Western morals, Western values, Western ideals, Western standards of propriety, Western sexual ethics, which as we explored at the top of this episode, cannot be separated from, cannot be divorced from Christianity. You can go back in time, perhaps possibly in a fantasy 
in a work of fiction. And imagine, what if we were all Bacchanalians? What if we were all to give ourselves totally over to the Greek gods of pre-Christian Greece or pre-Christian Rome? We can fantasize about that, but there's no getting around the fact that our eyes are opened like Adam and Eve to the fact that we are naked and we are ashamed. And so it doesn't work. The key ingredient is belief, and we don't have that anymore. And so what we must get is ever-increasing quantities of denial, and even angry denial, even the kind of angry denial that holds a machete to a reporter's throat and says, I'll chop you up. Get away from my door. Or, which says to a mother who's considering getting an abortion, if you don't want this child, that's all I need to know. I'll take care of the rest, as long as your check clears. This person being interviewed by Pierce Morgan and his co-host, this person is saying, if parents say, no, that's childism because you're violating the child's rights. And I would say, what is it when a predator comes around in my neighborhood and tries to lure my children into their ice cream truck or what looks like an ice cream truck with the promise of free candy? What is it when I say no to that? Is that me discriminating against my children or is that me protecting my children? What is it if I say, and this is why we homeschool, because the public schools are filled with self-harm and suicide and bullying and peer pressure and illiteracy. These kids don't know how to do math or read or think, but they know how they feel because that's all they've been taught. When the Bacchanalians trying to reenact or restore, rejuvenate, reform along pagan pre-Christian lines, when they are whipped into a frenzy and they tear some innocent person limb from limb as part of their religious ritual. And you're told you have to respect that. You have to affirm that. You have to tolerate that. Because who are you to say as a Christian that that's wrong? I say there's no going back. If you want progress, if you want to protect children, you won't be able to do it by listening to somebody who says protecting children looks like encouraging them to indulge in comprehensive sex education. You are not going to protect your children by telling them that everything they feel is true. And therefore, if they feel awful, well, you know, there's always euthanasia. There's always assisted suicide. If you have a terminal diagnosis, your life has no purpose. Or if you want to go through expensive and painful and life-altering surgeries, the parent is actually the enemy if the parent says no. Let me ask you this. I've got a one-year-old son. If my one-year-old son decides he wants to run across the street and there's an oncoming vehicle, am I discriminating against my child or am I protecting my child to say no? If my five-year-old son keeps crossing the street, even though I said, I want you to stay on this side of the street and he's not looking both ways and he's almost gotten hit, If I say no, and then he does it again, and I spank him, am I the one who is harming my child? Am I discriminating against my child? Or am I recognizing that my child has parents by God's design for a reason, and I need to do my job to protect and to provide for my child? We know the answers to these questions 
nature itself would teach us the answers to these questions. It's only very sinister, self-serving, corrupt people who want to give tortured arguments to the contrary and talk us out of what we know to be true and correct instinctively. And certainly what we can go to God's word and check to see whether it's correct. But let's delve into Neil Postman's book, The Disappearance of Childhood. And before I tell you anything about the book, let me just say I've read a few others by Postman, and I've enjoyed each one of them. Each one of them has been very insightful, in my view, starting with Amusing Ourselves to Death, continuing on to earlier this year, Technopoly, also How to Watch TV News. This is not the first book I've read by Neil Postman, but he's batting a thousand so far in terms of the books I've read by him being quality information and insight. That doesn't mean that every last little conclusion he comes to, I would fully endorse without qualification. There are things that he says where I think, ah, you might've gone a little too far and that needs to be walked back or moderated. But what he presents in terms of framing the problem is invaluable. So he writes in his 1982 book here, copyright 1982, The Disappearance of Childhood, about this idea that childhood as a category is being erased. And he spent some time talking about the Blue Lagoon, for instance, and Brooke Shields, and Brooke Shields being this young woman, this young girl, who was sexualized for the world to see on the big screen. And because we said, oh, it's just a movie, it was supposedly okay, but nevertheless, here's this young woman who is sexualized, and she's presented as something of a sex symbol. He writes also about young gals being put in advertising and being put forward as supermodels, the most highly paid supermodels, and them being in their teens. And they're young teens, more to the point. And how dangerous this is, because two things are happening at the same time. One, we are saying that these young girls now are women. And we, as men especially, could do worse than to look at these young women as objects of desire, that we would desire to have these young women, these teenage girls. And on the flip side, at the same time, you have this increasing obsession among adult women with looking young, with looking like they're still in their teenage years. And between the two, between the young ladies, young women, or teenage girls uh, being presented as objects of desire who are supposed to look sexy, and on the other hand, adult women, grown women, looking like young girls, what you have is this collapse of the idea that there's a difference between a girl and a woman. And then I think to myself, beyond what he writes here in The Disappearance of Childhood, I think about this collapse of the difference between boy and man. Do we expect that boys grow up to be men anymore? How long has it been since that was the default assumption? Boys grow up to be men. Now it might just as soon be 
boys grow up to be women. Or boys never grow up, ideally. Boys are just consistently boys. And let me just suggest for you the possibility that very wealthy, very powerful people have an easier time keeping company with their consciences and making money and staying in power if they talk us all into thinking that there are no men in society in a historic, traditional sense. Because if there were men in society, those men would be providing and they would be protecting, women and children especially. And then that would be it. That would be game over for these very wealthy, powerful, predatory people. If the men were men, then the men would say, that's enough. No, no, you can't talk to my daughter. I don't trust you. You're giving me the creeps. You'd better just walk away right now. No, you can't recruit my daughter to be in this movie, for instance. I mean, that's a big question. Where was Brooke Shields' father when she was being approached to play a part in the Blue Lagoon? Where were the fathers of these young female models who were in their early teens when they were being approached with big expensive contracts to serve as sex symbols for men all over the world to gawk at? Call them fashion models if you want to, but nevertheless, the big question should be, where were the fathers? And consider with me a couple of verses briefly, briefly, briefly from the New Testament along these lines. And this is not unique to protecting young girls in their purity. This also applies to protecting young men and young boys in their virtue. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you have Jesus saying that children, in a good way, are to be emulated. We should want to be childlike with regards to humility. This is not so dissimilar from be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, by the way given what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 11. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He says in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil but in your thinking be mature, which is to say a couple of things. One, that infants with regards to evil are innocent, for starters, which is to say on the short list of things that God hates, shedding innocent blood, shedding the blood of infants, you cannot get more unjust than that with regards to murder. The more innocent somebody is, the more heinous and evil it is to shed that innocent person's blood. But also he's saying within these two chapters, Paul to the Corinthians, give up on being childish, but with regards to evil, it would be good for you to be childlike. And Jesus says a very similar thing. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he called a child to him. He put them all on notice those who were standing around. He put the child in the midst of them. He put the rest of everybody else who were in that context, 
a captive audience of sorts, his disciples, for instance, they put them on notice. Unless you become like children, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We know elsewhere that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we're called to be humble like a child. We're called to be innocent like a child. We're not called to be ignorant and unknowing. And so we come back to this Disappearance of Childhood book by Neil Postman. And it's increasingly plausible to my way of thinking when I think back on the last three years, three and a half years of COVID in the U.S. and around the world, when I think about the policy of mask mandates and vaccine mandates and social distancing and parents and their children alike being told you can't go to school, you can't go to work, you have to stay home, you can't even go to the local park without somebody calling the police on you and you potentially being arrested because you're violating these stay-at-home orders. Even if you're not sick, stay home. Even if you're not around other people outside your own household, we can't have you being seen out in public. I look at all that and I look at what great damage was done to a whole generation of children. And that's just considering COVID policy. When I think back on the last century of American compulsory schooling, look at the damage that's been done to multiple generations of American kids in the public schools, on the progressive model. It is time to repent, my fellow Americans. It is time to repent, my countrymen. It is time for us to repent and to turn away from the great sin that has been committed against children, unborn and born. It's a sin that tens of millions of innocent boys and girls have been murdered with full knowledge of the government and with legal protection, and even in some cases with financial support from the government using our tax dollars. But really, actually, if we're honest, given the relationship of the printing of money by the Federal Reserve and the habits of the U.S. Congress and the U.S. presidents over the last century or so, even just how the government spends money is a crime and a sin against these children. Generations of children have grown up poorer for their parents' ability to provide for them being devalued, their parents' ability to protect them being devalued. If I, as a parent in certain states, in certain cities in this country, could be arrested and hold out, if my kids had to go to a public school and if I complained and objected to my children being molested or raped or groomed or neglected, if I could be put on a terrorist watch list with this administration appointing heads of important bureaucracies in the U.S. government, I say there's a lot of repenting to do. When it is the case that these technologies, big tech and social media and the rest, have been rolled out, not accidentally hijacking the minds of young people, but on purpose, intentionally designed to hack their most primal motivation centers so as to change their behavior and change their attitudes and change their voting patterns. I say that a great sin against children needs to be repented of. And so I read 
The Disappearance of Childhood by Neil Postman. And I already agreed with the premise that this is a bad thing. The publisher's summary reads as follows. From the vogue for nubile models to the explosion in the juvenile crime rate, this modern classic of social history and media traces the precipitous decline of childhood in America today and the corresponding threat to the notion of adulthood. I look at this and I say, I don't need convinced, but I could use some good arguments. I could benefit from hearing somebody else put it in their own words and bring up some statistics that maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm not familiar with all of those points and those arguments, but I want to be armed with them. And if you also want to be, you should read The Disappearance of Childhood by Neil Postman. And oh, by the way, this is a very difficult thing to figure out where it begins and where it ends, but progressively look at where the trends are going in terms of the intactness of families or self-harm among the youth or literacy rates or crime rates among the youth. Look at those stats and look at correspondingly, how much money has been poured into education. Look at how much money has been spent on advertising that targets children in recent decades. Look at the media that's been targeting children to try and influence them. Look at all of that and ask yourself a very, very simple question. If you were to stand before Almighty God and give an account on Judgment Day of how you raised your children, would you be able to in good conscience, here, well done, good and faithful servant, with regards to your children, with regards to your sons and your daughters. If not, I implore you, seek the Lord's face, turn, repent, search his word, ask him for wisdom. James says he gives generously to all without finding fault. He will give you wisdom if you believe and don't doubt, but you have to act Not just know the good that you ought to do and then pat yourself on the back for knowing. Know the good that you ought to do and do it. Otherwise, it's sin. And you should repent of that too if you've known better and you haven't. All this nonsense about financial security and being sociable and being well-liked and being able to succeed in these various spheres. What is any of that worth at the end of your life? If you get to advanced age and you look back on your life What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his children's souls? Do check out this book by Neil Postman, The Disappearance of Childhood. It's sobering, but I don't think you'll be sad that you did. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.